700 years before Jesus was born, a prophet named Isaiah gave us this promise, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. These words were spoken during some of the darkest days of the history of the Jewish people. The once mighty nation of Israel has been torn apart by civil war. Ten tribes have gone to the north, Israel. Two tribes have gone to the south, Judah. They're being led by ungodly people, and there are external threats around them. In fact, in the course of the next 100 to 150 years, both nations will be dragged into exile. First Israel by the Assyrians, and then Judah by the Babylonians. And in this time, Isaiah gives us these words. It was a dark time. People needed hope then, and people need hope today. Now, we're here tonight to celebrate, but I don't think it would be fair to pretend that the festivities and celebrations of today and tomorrow can make all of the darkness in our lives and in our world disappear. In fact, for many, the holidays seem to make things darker. And after the Christmas roast has been carved and consumed and the Christmas cookies have been eaten and enjoyed and the wrapping paper has been torn to bits and tossed away, we're still left needing hope. Israel needed hope. They needed the promise of something better. They needed the promise of someone better. And the promise that they wanted was the promise of a great warrior, a good king, a powerful deliverer, a victorious champion. But as it turns out, the promise that they needed and the promise that you and I need is the promise of a son, a child, a baby. Isaiah 9, 6, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Tonight, very briefly, I want to talk with you about the arrival of the Son. And we're going to see that Jesus, arriving as the Son, he is the Son of God, he is the Son of Man, he is the Son of Suffering, and he is the Son of Glory. Now, those of you that come to church here on Sundays, you know that normally it takes me 25 to 30 minutes to get through three points. So if you've just done the math, you're nervous about a four-point message. You're about to witness a Christmas miracle. (laughs) We're going to do four points in less than 15 minutes. Jesus, the Son of God. When I went to college in the fall of 1996, um, it was a fun time. Of course, you're in a new place and you're meeting new people. And as I got to meet new people and make new friends, we began to share information about our lives with each other. And one of the things that would come up inevitably is that I'm half Korean. My mother is uh, Korean. And they would ask me eventually, well, how Korean are you? Which is their way, by the way, I'm not sure you can ask the question anymore, but this is the late 90s. Um, which was their way of, of saying, how culturally Korean are you? And, and I'm culturally, culturally Korean enough that all the words I know in Korean fit into one of two categories. Food and words you shouldn't say in public. <laughs> if you put me at a Korean restaurant, I am fluent. Uh, but besides that, I only know a few words that you're not supposed to say. And long story short, I began to share some of those words. And one of the words that you're not supposed to say is actually phonetically fun to say in English. And they decided, my friends decided that it would be my nickname. And so they gave me this nickname and they called me this my whole freshman year of college to the point where some people didn't know my name. They just knew my nickname, but most of them didn't know what the word actually meant. 
And it was okay until the summer after my freshman year of college and I went home and one of my friends from college called the house looking for me. And this is pre-cell phones, landline strapped to a wall. You got to race your parents to get to the phone first. And I did not get to the phone first. And my mom, my Korean mother, answered the phone and they asked for me by my nickname. It was not a happy day in our home. (laughs) Everlasting Father is such an odd nickname for a baby. Everlasting Father. But it speaks to something very important. It speaks to Jesus' eternal divine nature, that Jesus didn't show up in history in the manger, but that he has always existed because he is God. He is the Son of God. Everlasting is a word that we don't use very often because, well, nothing in this world is everlasting. I mean, nothing lasts forever. I was thinking of the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and that that piece of candy, the everlasting gobstopper, right? And this everlasting gobstopper, the whole idea was that it, it changed colors and it changed flavors as you enjoyed it, but its real magic is it never got any smaller. It lasted forever. And of course, the candy does not exist because in the real world, Nothing lasts forever. But when an eternal God steps into time as a baby, we can begin to believe that anything is possible. And normally the word son speaks of your origin and the order in which you've, uh, you've come to be. So, for example, my dad's name was Tom, Thomas. I was the son of Thomas, which when you're the son, it means that you came from your dad in a way, but you also came after your dad. However, in this case, this is not the way we understand the phrase Son of God because Jesus did not come after the Father. Jesus is eternal, just like God the Father. Jesus is the everlasting one. He's the everlasting Father. He was God at work in creation, the eternal Son of God. So when we see the phrase Son of God, what it speaks to us instead is of his relationship with the Father, his submission to the Father's plan and will, and also his unique privilege being the Son of God, Jesus the Son of God. Secondly, Jesus is the Son of Man. Now, the origin of this title comes from a vision that a couple hundred years before Jesus was born, a Jewish prophet named Daniel, who was living in Babylonian exile, had this vision. And this vision of the Son of Man speaks of the divine authority that Jesus had when he came to earth, the authority that he exercised when he healed the sick, when he cast out demons, when he taught, when he performed miracles, and even when he forgave people's sins. That divine authority is all captured in this title, the Son of Man. But this title is also an expression of his humanity and his humility, that Jesus, the Son of God, would become the Son of Man, born of a woman, that he would wrap himself in human flesh, that he would wrap himself in the human experience, that he would wrap himself in the limitations that humans experience, the limitations of time and space. The Son of God, becoming the Son of Man, speaks to his descent from heaven to earth to find us, to reach us, and to rescue us. An old scholar describes it this way. He says, The deep descent of Jesus was from the heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth, from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from dignity to debasement, from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the gory place, 
Because we cannot ascend to him, he descends to us, the Son of Man. C.S. Lewis said it this way, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. This is what it means, the Son of God and the Son of Man. The third thing that I want us to learn together is that Jesus came as the Son of Suffering, the son of suffering. Now my, my wife Erin and I, we have three daughters, 15, 12, and 9. And each time that we were expecting, we decided to learn their gender in advance. We're just planners. We just like to know. And we just couldn't wait. And so every now and then I have friends and I'll ask them, friends that are expecting, I'll say, are you going to find out the gender of your baby in advance? And of course, there's not a right or wrong answer. Some do and some don't. But often the ones that don't, the reason they give is, I want, I, want a, I want it to be a surprise. I want it to be a surprise. And so what I say to them is, listen, based, that's great and that's fine, but based on my experience of being in a delivery room, everything in that room is a surprise. <laughs> For me, anyway, as a guy, like it's all a surprise. What's going on? How is that possible? Why is that happening? It's one surprise after another. I don't necessarily need another surprise. When, when a baby is born, there's so much joy, but... You know if you've been in that room, if you're here, if you've given birth, that when a baby is born, there is so much suffering. So much suffering. And it was no different on that night outside of Bethlehem. In fact, I'm sure in many ways it was worse without the assistance of modern medicine. No doctors on hand, no nurses, no epidural, no ice chips, no whatever you need to get through it. It was Mary and Joseph and suffering. Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, came into the world through a moment of great suffering. And it's appropriate because it was just the start of his suffering. Jesus, according to the scriptures, was a man who was acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows. He knew what it meant to suffer. Paul David Tripp says it this way, God would take on human flesh and invade this sin-broken world with his wisdom, power, glory, and grace. But he would not descend to a palace. Instead, the Lord Almighty, the creator, the sovereign king over all things, would humble himself and take on the form of a servant. He would live on our behalf the life we could have never lived, the perfect life. And then he would willingly die the death that you and I deserve to die. And he would rise from his tomb as the conqueror over sin and death. Jesus would suffer every single day of his life so that he could, with his life, listen, give grace to rebels, extend love to those who deny his existence, impart wisdom to those who think they know better, and extend forgiveness to everyone who seeks him. Jesus coming to earth stands as the ultimate affirmation that he will not relent, he will not be satisfied until sin and suffering are no more, and we are like him, dwelling with him in unity, peace, and harmony forever and ever. Jesus, the son of suffering. And as our son of suffering, he is those two things that Isaiah said. First, he is our wonderful counselor. Someone who can counsel you in your season of life is often someone who has been where you are. There's a lot of comfort in talking to somebody who has suffered what you are suffering or gone through what you are going through. And Jesus, our, the son of suffering, it makes him a wonderful counselor because he knows this Christmas season where you are. I know in our church family, there are some of you who will be celebrating Christmas this year without someone that you've loved and lost this past year. Christmas will feel different. 
in the midst of your sorrow and your grief and your suffering, we serve a God who is not distant and unaware and unfamiliar with what it means to lose and suffer, but but rather he embraced the suffering way so that he might be our wonderful counselor. But also as a son of suffering, he is our prince of peace because it's his suffering that brings us peace. He's broken down every wall. He is our peace. In fact, when the angels spoke to the shepherds on that night, they said, on earth, peace and goodwill from God toward humankind. Peace with God because Jesus suffered in our place. He's the son of suffering. And then lastly, I'm going to ask Pastor Antonia to join me. He's the son of God, son of man, son of suffering. The story doesn't end there. He's also the son of glory, the son of glory. And we think of the Christmas story, the account in the Gospels, and you read through the details, it would be easy to ask the question, where is the glory in this story? Where is it? I mean, Jesus is born to a peasant couple, uh, uh, really, relatively speaking, nobodies who live in a nowhere sort of place, Nazareth. His birth is shrouded in scandal. Even if you know his genealogy, which you can find in the Gospel of Matthew, it's filled with stories of people whose lives are marked by ugly sin and tremendous brokenness. Mary and Joseph were first forced far from the support of their family and the comfort of their home for the birth of Jesus because of a census. And then they got to Bethlehem and there was no room anywhere for a woman who was ready to give birth. They gave birth in the cold of a Bethlehem night surrounded probably by barnyard animals His birth was announced by angels, pretty cool, but not to important people, (laughs) not to significant people, not to the affluent and those who had power, but to the shepherds who were overlooked and looked down upon. There's no fanfare. There's no big announcement. There's no crowd. There's no comfort. This is not how a king should be welcomed into his kingdom. And yet... Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, Isaiah said, His government and his peace will never end. Listen, friends, the message of Christmas is this, that because the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of Glory, the Son of Suffering, all in the person of Jesus Christ came to this earth, the offer on the table for you and me is a peace that never ends. It's a peace that does not depend upon life's circumstances. It's a peace that does not depend upon you climbing the next rung on the ladder. It's a peace that does not depend upon you getting the perfect score on your next test or the, playing the perfect game in your, uh, when you, in your sport. It's a peace that does not depend upon uh, a report from a doctor. It's a peace that does not depend upon the financial market or the outcome of the next election. It's a peace that will never end. See, the story that we're celebrating today And tomorrow is a story that does not end at the manger. It does not end at the cross. It doesn't even end at the empty tomb. This story never ends. It's the everlasting story. And his government and the peace of his government will never end. Jesus' willingness to leave glory unleashed glory on us and guaranteed that we would live with him in glory forever. He made this broken world his destination so that our final destination would be a place where every form of brokenness has ended and where we would live with him in complete peace and harmony that will never end a place of glory. So as I finish, Jesus came as the son of God, 
which means he's the eternal divine one. We can trust his power and his perspective. He's God. He came as the son of man, Jesus, the God man. He became one of us to save all of us. He's the son of suffering. He's our savior. He knows our weaknesses. He can sympathize with our struggles and he suffered in our place. And even today, he, he lives forever to pray for us. And he's the son of glory, Jesus, our king, whose rule, whose rightful rule will never end. And because that's true, you can have, as the angel said, good news of great joy for all people. Let's pray together.